If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Welcome back. Rob Breckenridge with you here on this Monday afternoon. 403-974-8255 is a number. Uh, so David Milgard, much like uh, Stephen Truscott and in some other cases, really became synonymous with injustice in our justice system. Synonymous uh, with the issue of wrongful convictions and sort of personifying what that's like, what that's like for someone to go through this, to be accused of a crime that you didn't commit, to be convicted of that crime that you did not commit, to have to pay a price for a crime you did not commit. David Milgard, who was accused of, convicted of a crime he didn't commit, spent 23 years behind bars before he was finally released and then exonerated a few years later. How do you ever recover from that? Like that exacts quite a toll on somebody. Yes, David Milgard was compensated. But does that make up for it? And what can we learn from what these individuals went through to make sure that it never happens again? And so it's difficult as it was for David Milgard to, to revisit his own horrific experience. Uh, after his release, it was something he committed himself to, uh, to be an advocate for justice, to be an advocate for those who were in a similar situation as him. And maybe this is a lot more common than we think or want to think. Like it's reassuring to believe that the system gets it right. That once you've been found guilty beyond a reasonable doubt, that that's the reality of the situation. We have too many examples that, that suggest it's not always the case. So how does it happen and how do we prevent it from happening? Uh, so David Milgard really uh, embodied this important uh, crusade. He passed away over the weekend, uh, died yesterday at the age of 69 in a Calgary hospital. Uh, joining us to talk more about his life, his legacy, the impact of this case, very pleased to welcome the program here this afternoon, Ron Dalton, co-president of Innocence Canada, innocencecanada.com is the website. Ron, good to have you with us. You're welcome to the program. Thank you. Uh, let me just get your thoughts on, you know, the, the importance of David Milgard's case and also the importance of, of his own commitment to this cause. I don't think we can underestimate the importance of David's case. It was one of the early cases, uh, Donald Marshall case in Nova Scotia came before David's, and it was considered a one-off, an aberration. Uh, and even David's case, you know, we fought long and hard to get him exonerated. It was 28 years after he was arrested that he was finally exonerated. And, and in exonerating David, we were actually able to identify the, the perpetrator of the, the murder of Gail Miller. Uh, but that kind of led to a, a snowball effect that once those first couple of cases were proven, and in David's case, we had DNA to prove it beyond a reasonable doubt, beyond any doubt, uh, that made it a little easier for the next person who came along, whether that was me or that was uh, Tom Safano or any of the other names that we, we know from across the country. 
And 30 years later, when Innocence Canada goes into a courtroom now fighting for one of our clients, we get a lot more respect and we, we have some, uh, we have a track record for starters, but uh, yeah. it's now more recognized that wrongful convictions do happen. Back in, in David's day when, when his, him and his mother were fighting to free him and, and exonerate him, uh, people just didn't believe that the courts ever got it wrong. Which, of course, flies in the face of, of common sense when you think about it. The criminal justice system is comprised of human beings, and human beings are definitely fallible. They make mistakes all the time. Usually they're not of such a magnitude that somebody loses their life over it. But mm-hmm. back when David was uh, convicted, we still had a death penalty in this country. That's right. They didn't, they didn't apply it to David. They had applied it to one of our other clients, uh, Stephen Truscott. Mm-hmm. And they, they didn't carry through with hanging a 14-year-old boy, thank God, because 49 years later, we were able to get him exonerated as well. But David uh, had a very difficult time. He, was a, he told me one time he was a 17-year-old teenager when he got to the penitentiary, and he was a 40-year-old teenager when they let him out. Yeah. You don't really grow up or mature much in an environment like that. And he had a very difficult sentence to serve, but... Uh, he was in twice as long as I was, and, and it was a very horrific crime. This was a sexually motivated homicide of a young girl, and uh, David had nothing to do with that, but he had to wear it for 28 years. So he, he had a difficult time inside. He certainly had every right to turn around and walk away from wrongful convictions and other people's problems. But David took that suffering that he had gone through and turned it into a lifelong commitment to to help others. Right, and of course, he got out uh, of prison right around the time when you were still fighting to prove your own innocence. Uh, you were conv- wrongfully convicted uh, of murder. Wrong- were, you, were you aware of, of his case and what was going on with oh, that yes. at the time? Yes, yeah, certainly. Uh, uh, cases like David's and, and Donald uh, Marshall's were the, the things that gave uh, hope to people like me who were still in prison trying to prove their own innocence. You you have the sure and certain knowledge in your own mind that you're the one person who knows you're innocent, and then you have family and lawyers and, and supporters who believe in you. But sometimes all you have left to hold on to is, is that sure and certain knowledge that you're innocent and a little bit of hope that you get from watching people like David and Donald Marshall and others work their way through the system. And, you know, these, I mean, you know, you were, were convicted, it was, I think, 1989, obviously, uh, you know, for... for um for David, it was 1970, and, and maybe it's, again, this false comfort that Canadians want to give ourselves that, you know, this, this is something that happened a long time ago, and now that we've had these, these wrongful convictions come to light, and we've got DNA technology and all of that, that it just doesn't happen anymore. But, but that, that's dangerous to think that, isn't it? As, as a co-president of Innocence Canada, I can tell you we have 109 cases that we're currently working on. Wow. Half of those are on a two- to three-year wait list because we don't have the resources to get to them and, and deal with them. We have 10 cases in front of the federal justice minister at the moment where we're convinced that these people are innocent. And we're waiting sometimes up to five and six years for the minister and his officials to make a decision on the cases after we've spent years working on them. So the, the mistakes continue to be made. We like to think that we're getting a little better at uh, catching them and correcting them. But uh, the reality is the caseload has been growing, not not getting smaller. Now, David, uh, a couple of years ago, had been appointed to this independent review board working group, and it was something that, you know, the federal government created. Has that made a no, difference? I, just 
just jump in and correct you on that sure. now. The, the Independent Review Board, as David named it himself, comprised five of us, myself, David, James Lockyer, and a couple of ladies that were joining the board and, and helping us lobby the, the government. Right. We've been lobbying the government for the last 35 years, 30 years that the Innocence Canada has been existing, in existence. But even before that, public inquiries going back to the Marshall Inquiry uh, had recommended that Canada create an independent, publicly funded body mm-hmm. to report to Parliament, not report back to the minister who was um, also the, the chief police officer in, in the country and involved in, in your prosecution, uh, which is the current situation. So we, that's, this has been recommended for a number of years. The government is now taking some steps to establish a commission. Last year, they conducted some consultations. They, they engaged a couple of retired justices uh, who met with David and I and other wrongly convicted people. They met with Innocence Canada. They took all of our recommendations and, and uh, put them all together and met with 50 or 60 other groups across the country as well, not just us, of course. Uh, but they published their uh, recommendations, uh, I think, in February, a couple months ago. And now we're waiting for the minister and, and the prime minister to take action on those. Why do these things move so slowly, Ron? This, this seems like it's something that should have an urgency to it, and yet it doesn't. It, 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 has, a, it has an urgency when it comes to your door. It's urgent. Yeah. But it's one of those things that doesn't capture the public's imagination because you never think it's going to happen to you. Exactly. You like to be blissfully ignorant of that the, the system works the way it's supposed to. Police don't arrest people who haven't done something. The courts don't convict people who haven't done something. But the reality is uh, we're human beings and we, we make mistakes. Our courts and, and stuff get things wrong a lot more often than people ever thought they would. And, of course, David David is I was going to say living proof, but that no longer applies. But he really epitomized the uh, the problems that can happen in a case when you have police tunnel vision. They just concentrate on, on one person and they start with an answer and work backwards and ignore everything that doesn't uh, support their conclusion. But with, you know, groups like Innocence Canada and these cases that have come to light and technology that's that's there, we're ready to use it. I mean, surely we're in a better position now than, than say, 30 years ago, right? We should be in a better position. Uh, people, uh, I did an interview not long ago and somebody asked me, are things getting better or worse? The answer was yes. Mm-hmm. Some things are getting better and some things are getting worse. We, we have limited resources. We don't put a lot of money into legal aid. Uh, funding in most provinces and a lot of the people who are getting wrongfully convicted uh, don't have the funds to hire private counsel and and it becomes the more marginalized you are in society the easier it is to wrongly convict you but the exceptions are the white collar guys like myself that get wrongfully convicted and no matter what your resources are the state or the the government always has more money than you do so it's not a real level playing field you're right about that. Uh, much more at innocencecanada.com. Ron, thank you so much for making some time for us here today. Really appreciate this. You're welcome. All the best, sir. That is Ron Dalton, co-president of Innocence Canada, and someone himself has uh, gone through this. He's convicted in December of 1989. Convicted in the murder of his wife, Brenda Dalton, who died in August of the previous year. Ron waited eight years in prison to have his appeal heard. It took 12 years for the truth to come out, that no crime had been committed. Ron was an innocent man. So not only did this man have to grieve the loss of his wife, he had to spend years in prison. 
and to have to bear that burden. The state maintaining that you were responsible, that you did it. Like, I think this is where that, that, that mindset kicks in. I mean, it's confirmation bias at some level, but it's very protective to all of us because we don't want to think that this ever happens, let alone could ever happen to us. And I think that's why it's so hard to come to grips with it when it does. Because you have to acknowledge all of those things. You have to acknowledge that, yes, it does happen. And yes, it could happen to you. There's nothing preventing that from happening to you. And so it, it should matter, right? And, and so David's passing is a reminder of what Canadians have gone through. And there are others like them, like, you know, the, the, the individual we just spoke with. This was pure evil. It was straight up racially motivated hate crime. Buffalo police describing what happened Saturday in their city. They say an 18-year-old gunman, uh, military gear, live streaming with a helmet camera, opened fire at a supermarket in Buffalo. Uh, Ten people, ten African-Americans were killed. Police say they were targeted because of their race. He deliberately targeted a black neighborhood. Among the dead, Aaron Salter Jr., the security guard who tried to stop the shooter. 32-year-old Roberta Drury, who's actually from Syracuse, was in Buffalo helping her brother who was recovering from a bone marrow transplant. Andre McNeil, who was at the supermarket buying a cake for his son's third birthday. Like There's a story here to all of these victims. But this individual, authorities say, didn't care. Didn't care who they were, only saw what they were, only saw the color of their skin. And that's what motivated these horrific crimes. Now, there's another side to all of this, too, and and why we have an understanding of the motivation here. This individual live streamed what he was doing and also posted uh, a lengthy manifesto outlining his views and, and painting a picture of what he was buying into, including this conspiracy theory about uh, white replacement. He actually credited uh, the online 4chan community for his radicalization. Now, this is one of those parts of the Internet where a lot of this, this stuff festers. And in fact, the uh, shooter in the New Zealand massacre uh, back in 2019 had also posted on 4chan. So joining us to talk more about, you know, that side of it, how these Internet communities kind of fuel this this radicalization and, you know, why these these perpetrators are, are posting their crimes, posting their views. We're pleased to welcome the program here this afternoon. Jared Holt is a resident fellow with the Atlantic Council's Digital Forensic Lab, researching domestic extremism and the Internet. Uh, Jared, thank you so much for making some time for us here today. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. I wish it was under better circumstances, of course. Uh, indeed, obviously. And, you know, unfortunately, we, we will probably see something like this again with some of these these same connections. How do we begin to, to make sense of this? Uh, you know, what we saw happen in upstate New York follows a very disturbing and sadly familiar pattern. Um, this suspect and the document that I believe to have left online really outlines an affinity for the model put forward by uh, the perpetrator of the 2019 
Christchurch attack. Um, that included everything from leaving a major document uh, like this online ahead of time uh, to be passed around after the attack. Uh, huge portions of it are copied and pasted uh, from that New Zealand killer, mm-hmm. uh, you know, down to live streaming the attack and seeking to achieve a degree of infamy for himself. And, uh, you know, whether it is that infamy or the desire to uh, inspire or instruct uh, copycats to follow in his wake. Uh, unfortunately, I don't think this is going to be uh, the last case of something like this. And I think it really puts the impetus on revisiting conversations that uh, were going on in 2019 about content moderation, about radicalization. Um, if you know, in any place those had fallen to the wayside or, uh, you know, been sort of glazed over as other news approaches, I think it really kind of underscores the urgency that although certainly a lot of work has been done between 2019 and now, there is still a long, long way to go. It's it's an interesting contrast, isn't it, that, that uh, Twitch, which is uh, a really popular mainstream online platform was was used at least say by by the attacker but you know 4chan is one of these sort of obscure parts of the internet kind of that that ugly underbelly of the internet it, it does seem like a, a contrast yeah so the uh, document was passed around in a chat room server and also made its way uh, to 4chan if we think of that as the underbelly um, you know that we can think of the users on that board as something or, or you know a group of people that uh, the suspect perceived as a sympathetic audience, thinking you know th- these are the folks that are going to be excited by this. These are the people that uh, you know like to talk like this, who will celebrate me. Um, but seeking out an audience or seeking out infamy, we saw the suspect still go to a mainstream platform like Twitch. And I suspect that is because Twitch, even on a bad day, is getting considerably more viewers uh, and has a better web infrastructure in place that uh, he could use compared to a site like Fortune. Now, when it comes to these websites, and as you say, I mean, it's he knows to go there to, to find like-minded individuals, but, you know, at that point, he's already one of them. And there's this whole process of, well, how did he get that way in, in the first place? So, I mean, are, are these forms, these, these web forms, are they part of the radicalization process, do you think? Uh, they can be. I think it might be more helpful to think of them as sort of an uh, outlet for it. Um, you know, it is not that, uh, you know, racially motivated extremism is invented on a place like 4chan, but it is given a friendly reception and a place to uh, fester on a place like 4chan where moderation is very, very light, uh, if really that noticeable at all to begin with. Um, in the, what we've seen happen repeatedly in what appears um, at least from reading this document that was left behind and uh, viewing the way that he uh, copycatted the New Zealand shooter. You know, these communities are both a source of propaganda and also a kind of parasocial form of community for radicalized individuals. 
um, you know, these kind of beliefs can often and rightfully so isolate people from family members. For, it can make it hard for them to make friends. But with a few clicks, they can go to a place like 4chan and suddenly find themselves in the midst of other people uh, who believe that and think like that. And like any sort of in-group or click online, the same way it might apply, uh, it's not a great comparison, but to like a music fandom. Uh, right, you know, there's the in language, there is the uh, community aspect to it, and those aspects um, providing that sort of social validation and social encouragement can certainly aid people uh, as they are, you know, traversing down the rabbit hole into radicalization. What's that dilemma? Maybe it's a dilemma, you know, for for us in the media and and you know, others who follow all of this is is trying to understand all of this without giving it too much of a platform. Like, should people see what this guy wrote or, you know, is, is, is that not fit for public consumption, do you think? I don't think it's appropriate uh, in, in most cases. So the document that he left behind certainly shed a lot of light on, uh, you know, what we believe or, you know, if we're going to take it at face value, what his motivations were or what he says they were. Um, So so there is a value in that, um, particularly if something needs to be contextualized. But something about this document in particular and a a reason that I spent my weekend kind of trying to discourage people from linking to it or sharing it is that along with all of the racist and harmful ideology, um, the creator of the document also took great pains to explain how he planned to do what he did uh, down to weapon choice, armor choice, um, and essentially provided a blueprint for, you know, the next person to kind of pick up the blood-soaked torch and, you know, continue on this pattern. So I... For that reason, especially, I don't think this document is really fit for public consumption. Yeah. Um, you know, as people who operate in the media or you know, journalists covering this, it is very difficult, if not impossible, to control, you know, who is going to come across what you publish. And in the case of this instance and in Christchurch, and I'm sure what will be, uh, you know, the atrocities that haven't happened yet uh that kind of material in the hands of wrong one wrong person can be especially dangerous so i i definitely think it's important to discuss kind of the substance and the motivations of uh what happened but at the same time i don't think that necessarily means that uh, we have to dispense this document verbatim out to the public. I, I definitely think there's a middle ground there somewhere where we can synthesize it or explain the ideas uh, that drove this act of violence, uh, but without giving this guy exactly what he wants, which is for everybody to read this racist uh, nonsense screed and feel inspired to uh, follow in his footsteps. Right. And in terms of how we, we go about tackling this, because ultimately we're trying to fight the ideology and, and you know, the, the, Technology is is the platform that you know shares and spreads this ideology, but ultimately, I, I think it's the ideology we're trying to tackle. But the way in which it's manifested online, or how you know these people are taking advantage of more mainstream sites to 
know, live stream these atrocities. I mean, where, where do we even begin here? Well, I think one place where we can begin, uh, you know, folks like myself who research this kind of thing for a living and even, you know, historians and scholars of uh, fascism throughout history and whatnot, uh, I think, among other things, would, one, point to sort of a lowering social cost to engaging in this kind of ideology. And we saw this, uh, you know, the same ideology if only a little bit watered down, being aired on networks like Fox News, coming out of the mouths of elected politicians, sometimes with uh, the phrase of replacement or great replacement invoked verbatim. Um, And when there is not an appropriate social cost to doing something like that, whether it is, uh, you know, losing a television program or being denounced by uh, leaders in the country or online, it could be a uh, an account ban or a suspension. You know, when when the kind of accountability mechanisms start to fail, uh, and when those accountability efforts do not uh, understand the grasp of the scale of the nature that we're doing of the nature of the issue that we're facing, which is sort of the normalization of the very same ideas that. Uh, drove this individual to senselessly murder people, um, that is certainly a good place to start, a a restatement of values and a very concerted and intentional effort, um, preferably from, from leaders across the political spectrum, to really redefine and drive that social cost of affiliating with something like this, because the ideology here is one that is soaked in the bloods of countless, soaked in the blood of countless innocent people, and it should be treated as such. Dean, we'll leave it there. Uh, much more the Digital Forensic Research Lab. It's uh, digitalsherlocks.org and uh, more at atlanticcouncil.org. Uh, Jared Holt, thank you so much for making some time for us here today. Really appreciate this. Thanks for having me. All the best. Uh, Jared Holt is a resident fellow with the Digital Forensic Lab, part of the Atlantic Council. So his thoughts on this whole situation. Well, look, there's no doubt that the abortion issue is, you know, really going to define U.S. politics, uh, you know, in, in the short term for sure, maybe even longer. Right. And yes, there are states that are indeed poised to ban abortion assuming uh, Roe v. Wade is overturned by the Supreme Court. And based on that leaked draft ruling we saw a couple of weeks ago, that is about to happen. So, yes, the pro-life movement or the anti-abortion movement in the U.S. is influential enough uh, that there are elected politicians who are prepared to ban abortion when they have the opportunity. And obviously there's enough elected uh, conservative politicians who are more than happy to put judges on the Supreme Court and other levels of court as well, uh, to overturn rulings like Roe v. Wade. But that's the reality in the U.S., no question. But what's the reality here? I mean, there obviously is an anti-abortion movement. We saw last week, it was the annual March for Life in the nation's capital. Once again, thousands of Canadians taking part of that event. We saw over the weekend, the other side of that, uh, pro-choice rallies happening in various cities right across the country. Big numbers there, too. But it seems like the debate is, is remarkably different in Canada. 
And maybe there are numerous reasons for that. Like, for example, there was a poll out last week that showed the overwhelming majority of Canadians don't want this issue reopened. And if it was going to be reopened, the vast majority would support even further strengthening access to abortion. So that's the reality here. So yes, there's an anti-abortion movement, but where are their victories? Where's their clout? Where's their influence? And I'm not necessarily advocating complacency if you worry like, Someday down the road, what's happening in the U.S. could happen here. But I think we need to be realistic about what the reality uh, of the situation currently is. Well, someone who, who closely studies uh, abortion politics, you know, the politics around it, certainly in Canada, how it compares to the United States. Uh, it's all only with us here this afternoon. Kelly Gordon is assistant professor at McGill University. Professor Gordon, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. You know, this is an issue, obviously, you've, you've studied a lot. Uh, we, we do see some, some, maybe some parallels, I suppose, in terms of our legal systems, our courts, et cetera, between Canada and the U.S. But politically, is it, is it like night and day? Yeah, I mean, night and day might be a little drastic. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, I think that Canadians have this tendency to import what's happening in the U.S. to the Canadian context. And I think we need to be really careful when we do that because we have a really distinct and sort of different history and politics of abortion uh, up north. Can we trace that back? I mean, obviously, when I say parallels, I mean, you know, we had a landmark court case in Canada in 88 that that enshrined abortion rights. So we had a landmark case in the U.S. in 73 that did the same. But it it does feel like maybe for a long time, the the debates, uh, the politics have been on different trajectories in our two countries. Can we how do we trace that back? Sure. Actually, what's interesting is that we don't have an enshrined right to abortion care in Canada. The Roe v. Wade decision was actually a much stronger decision um, in 1973, coming very early, than the Morgenthaler decision in 1988. Mm -hmm. And what the Morgenthaler decision did was actually just struck down existing abortion laws. And I think here is where we start to see some of the big differences. Um, In the U.S., for example, you know, the, the Roe v. Wade decision, um, before that, there isn't really an anti-abortion movement. There's no need for one. Abortion has been a crime for a hundred years. Um, and, and what that does is it creates an anti-abortion movement that becomes very influential in party politics in the U.S. And so, you know, in the 1980s, we see the rise of the religious right in the United States. And basically, the religious right um, and, and, you know, uh, uh, there's big sort of intersecting interests between the religious right and the anti-abortion movement. It takes over the Republican Party in the 1980s, right? And so we see abortion in the U.S. emerge as a really contentious political issue that in many ways becomes symbolic of other things. In Canada, what happens is, you know, the 1980s are very different. We see the passing of the Charter, for example. A kind of liberal consensus emerges and politicians from across the political spectrum are really reluctant to touch the abortion issue. So no politicians, and maybe especially conservative politicians, want to touch the issue because it's so controversial. Um, so I think you know, the ways that abortion have kind of um, you know, come into the political realm have been really different across the two countries. But obviously, you know, one casts a shadow on the other, and it feels to me like, you know, Canadians are aware of uh, the debate, the politics of, of this in the United States. I almost wonder, because it feels like to some extent, you know, the more the, the anti-abortion movement of the U.S. achieves, the the worse off whatever its equivalent in Canada is. I mean, it, it's got no victories to show for itself. It doesn't seem influential in, in mainstream Canadian politics. Do, do you see a correlation there? 
Yeah, I think that that's a really um, apt observation. So there's actually some evidence that shows that when we have debates over abortion politics in Canada, and, you know, because we're like so obsessed with American news, um, Mm -hmm. it often happens because abortion politics is blowing up in the U.S. But it shows, you know, when there's this spillover effect, when we talk about abortion as Canadians, when we have this debate, we actually see evidence that support for abortion care increases. Um, so I think you're exactly right um, that it, the terrain is so different here that you know, the outcome of these debates are, are also different. I, and I, look, I mean, we look at American politics, it's pretty easy to see. I mean, you know, certainly in, in most parts of the country anyways in the U.S. that, uh, you know, Republican politicians almost have to be uh, seen as anti-abortion. It, it's it's very much a mainstream view, I think, amongst conservative politicians. We don't see that here. I mean, there, there are social conservatives that exist in, in Canadian politics. I, I think, you know, maybe the anti-abortion movement is sort of taken for granted, like, please vote for us, but don't expect us to, to take up your cause. Why do we see that difference here, do you think? Yeah, that's so, that's so interesting. I mean, if you look at the U.S., just to your point of, of how Republicans have to be anti-abortion, like look at Donald Trump, look at Mitt Romney and how they had mm-hmm. to completely change their positions on abortion politics. And it is a really different uh, context here. And, you know, we've seen this play out over the last couple of weeks with the conservative leadership debate at the federal level. So there's one candidate, Leslie Lewis, who is explicitly anti-abortion, but certainly not in the same kind of like militant way that Republican politicians are, right? Her her kind of take is, oh, I'm going to, you know, introduce something against sex selection abortion, which is very different than, you know, we are going to ban abortion full stop. So even her, you know, she has to kind of moderate her discourse. And the other candidates, you know, either are explicitly pro-choice or kind of are trying to skirt around the issue. Um, and that's because they know that at the level of the general electorate, you know, uh, uh, support for abortion care is so high. Some polls, I mean, polling is complicated, but some polls put it into like the high 70s and 80s. that um, they know that, you know, the liberals have been very effective at painting them as anti-abortion and it has not worked in general elections, right? right? So, you know, conservative politicians have this complicated terrain that they have to navigate where, you know, some of their base are anti-abortion. Certainly the anti-abortion movement in Canada exercises most of its political power at the level of leadership uh, races. We saw this with Andrew Scheer, for example. He won with the support of the anti-abortion movement. But when they get to the general electorate, they know that it's a losing position. So, you know, it's complicated for them. And, and um, I think we're seeing this play out in kind of real time right now. Right. And, and I mean, you know, to that, we saw this poll last week, which kind of reinforces these points. I mean, a vast majority of Canadians want this debate left alone. But if anything, you know, Canadians favor, if we're going to reopen it, let's reopen it to, to strengthen uh, access to abortion, to officially enshrine abortion rights. So what, what does that tell us about, you know, public opinion in Canada? Yeah, it, I mean, and this has been consistent over the last, you know, 10 to 20 years or so, is that Canadians are are very supportive of abortion rights. I saw those polls as well. Those are very high numbers. And I think it's probably related to this debate that we've been having for the last couple of weeks uh, since the leaked decision came out of the U.S., you know, which just shows that... Um, you know, it's interesting in Canada because often the debate that we have about abortion is like, should we have the debate at all? So it's like yeah. a debate over a debate. Um, you know, and <laughs> what I would say is if you're supportive of abortion care, 
we shouldn't be actually afraid of having this debate. That's a different question of whether we want legislation. Um, and I think a lot of kind of abortion rights advocates would be, um, you know, cautious about that, saying the status quo in some ways works, but what we need to do is kind of extend access to areas where access is more limited. Now, and certainly, you know, the, I think the message we, we saw over the weekend from, from these, uh, you know, the, these pro-choice rallies and some of the conversation we've seen since that leaked decision is that, yeah, this may be the, the status quo now, but what that could change. You know, one never knows what, what could change down the road. I mean, uh, so what message would you have to those who say, you know, we, we can't be complacent, that even though there's, you know, there's, there's no political incentive for politicians in this country to want to restrict those rights or reopen this debate, that maybe that's going to be different at some point. Yeah, I mean, so I think it's important to keep in mind that we are a distinct culture than the U.S. Also, the way that this debate happens, like, look, there are pockets in the U.S. that are more similar to Canadians when it comes to support for abortion care, right? Because yeah. in the U.S., abortion politics have played out at the state level. It's a very different context. Um, but what I also say is, like, absolutely, we need to keep, uh, you know, if you're supportive of abortion rights, you need to keep uh, being kind of vigilant. But let's think beyond abortion care as well. So let's think about extending access, for example, to rural areas. But let's think of other issues in terms of reproductive health and freedom. And so, you know, I think one interesting direction that a movement could go is to link these conversations that we're having about reproductive freedom to other issues that are so important, right? Funded childcare, which is a very live issue right now. Um, access to reproductive assistance, if you need that for, for example, same-sex couples. Um, so I think that what, you know, um, there is such high support for abortion rights that I don't see this in the next sort of 20 years becoming something that's going to come under fire. But because of that strength, this is an opportunity that when there's a tension on this issue, to kind of expand what we think about when we think about reproductive freedom and reproductive rights. That's a really interesting point. We'll leave it there. Uh, Professor Gordon, appreciate your insight uh, on all of this. And thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Thanks for having me. All right, there you go. That's uh, Kelly Gordon, uh, Assistant Professor of Political Science at McGill University, uh, someone who has focused a lot of research on the politics of abortion in Canada and contrasting some of the differences between the debate in Canada and the debate in the United States, or maybe to what extent the debate in the U.S. affects us. I think there's a correlation, and I don't think it's a correlation that helps to whatever extent there is an anti-abortion or pro-life movement in Canada. I mean, that movement is probably smart enough to realize that maybe the best we could hope for is, you know, some, some small steps, some minor changes. But I think you see, you know, what the anti-abortion movement is ultimately after. As evidenced in, you know, for example, some of the states that are poised to ban abortion outright. If that's the end game, Canadians don't want any part of that. So that's the problem for the anti-abortion movement here. They could say, well, you know, some maybe minor restrictions. That wouldn't be so bad. But you're not going to stop there. And I, I think people understand that. And that's, that's why, maybe the biggest reason why, you know, people don't want to go down that path. But let's start the conversation in Sour with what's happening in the housing market. And, and you know, we've certainly seen, uh, you know, in the housing market that's been going really strong, which I think is indicative of, of some economic recovery. But, I mean, it's also prompted that conversation about, you know, is, is affordability becoming a challenge? Is owning a home out of reach for a growing number of Canadians? And, and how do we bring a bit of sanity back to, to the situation? 
Now, some interesting numbers out today from the Canadian Real Estate Association. Uh, they're due in part two to mortgage rates going up. Home sales uh, slowed in April from the frenzied pace they started the year at. Association found the number of homes sold dropped by 25.7% to 54,894 last month, down from almost 74,000 in April of the previous year, when the country actually set a record for the month. So that, that's the latest snapshot. We'll see how things continue to unfold through this year. But it's an interesting story happening here in Alberta. Well, we haven't seen the kind of craziness we've seen in, you know, markets like Vancouver and Toronto and even what we've been seeing, you know, in places in southwestern Ontario, like London, Ontario, uh, is another market where, you know, things have been getting really crazy. So what's uh, part of the story in Alberta then? And it's interesting because, you know, both Edmonton and Calgary are, are two of the most affordable markets, not just in Canada, but, but in North America. So it's an interesting story happening here. And so what's, what's going on? Well, this was the subject of an op-ed over the weekend in the Calgary Herald stuff from our next guest, Brad Mitchell, who is CEO of the Alberta Real Estate Association. And he joins us on the line here this afternoon. Brad, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Hi, Rob. Thanks for having me. Well, I appreciate making some time for us here today. So first of all, you know, let me get your thoughts on, you know, these April numbers we see nationally, uh, you know, kind of gives us a snapshot of what's happening in the Canadian market. But uh, what do you make of that, first of all? Well, it's, you, you know, we've had a long time supply problem almost all across the country. And um, particularly in in Vancouver and in mm-hmm. Toronto, uh, that problem is exacerbated uh, because, you know, they have less land to build on. So you know, typically when you hear these numbers, uh, they're, they're very much focused on, on those two markets. Uh, here in Alberta, we've been kind of trucking along quite nicely. Uh, so it's, you know, we're, I think we're following the national trend, sure. but, but not as much as, as uh, Vancouver and Toronto. Yeah, and we've seen some strong demand here, and, we, you know, we've seen housing starts increase. So, obviously, we, you know, those factors are present. But, yeah, I think lost in, in kind of the national story is, is the interesting story happening here in Alberta. So why is it that we see Calgary and Edmonton as, as two of the most uh, affordable markets uh, among big cities in the country? Well, you know, there's a number of factors. One is is, is that there's, there's lots of places to build here in Alberta, and uh, we don't have the same type of city structures. Uh, we don't have the same type of uh, types of in migration uh, that we do that we see in in Toronto and Vancouver. But the other part of it is actually the the way that government policy works here in Alberta. Um, our governments here, and a, you know, a long succession of governments, have decided not to kind of follow uh, what they've done in in Toronto and and uh, Vancouver. Um, right. You know, there's no land transfer tax here in Alberta, which is a great advantage uh, for Albertans. Um, it's a big tax. It costs people lots of money, and uh, governments don't really do anything for that money. And they certainly don't put those funds that are gained from the land transfer tax back into affordable housing. Right. So, you know, it's not just luck. And obviously there's some market forces at play, but you're saying, you know, part of the, the success story in Alberta is is smart policy choices. Yeah, and it's not just it's not just smart policy policy and the policies that government implements. It's it's also 
smart policy where government doesn't do anything and lets yeah. the market dictate. So, you know, the problem with the with the transfer tax is that, you know, let's say you lose your job uh, and you have to move for whatever reason from mm-hmm. Calgary to Edmonton. Uh, well, in other provinces, if you have to move from Toronto to another city or Vancouver to another city, uh, just for the pleasure of losing your job, you also, when you buy your new house or, or sell your house, you have to pay a, a transfer tax to the government. And, you know, on a million-dollar house, uh, which isn't unusual in, in, in B.C. or, or Ontario, uh, you're looking in the neighborhood of twenty to $25,000. Right, and that, yeah. that comes right out of your pocket. So you have less to spend on a down payment. Um, you know, buyers and well, and sellers try to increase the price of their housing to make up for the tax. Mm-hmm. What's well, interesting because you know you talk about the benefit of having that lack of meddling in the housing market, but there seems to be a lot of pressure on government right now to get more involved, right? So there's almost the temptation where, well, maybe we we should be getting involved in some way. Like if if it's not broke, don't fix it, right? Is is the old saying? So what's your advice for the Alberta government now going forward here, and and amid what other levels of government might be looking at doing? Well, it really is a partnership between both the provincial government and municipalities. And what I would advise the provincial government to do is kind of to keep doing what they're doing, which is stay out of it. Um, but at a, at a municipal level, it's all about the permitting for new buildings, um, you know, making sure that there's, um, you know, a good regulatory environment without a whole bunch of, of taxes and fees when these new houses are being built and when new subdivisions are being built, uh, that really helps with the supply. And, mm-hmm. and really what we're seeing in Alberta is we, we have a short-term supply problem. We've got about uh, two months of inventory in, in the resale housing market. Uh, and, and typically you'd like to see that around six months. Uh, but really the government doesn't have good solutions. Um, this is really driven by people's preferences. It's driven by by the market. And, you know, in Alberta here, we're just getting back. We just surpassed yeah. the 2014 levels um, of price in January. Uh, so, you know, year over year, the increases are, are quite large. But if you look at it in, in, over time, um, Alberta's housing market has been affordable for a long period of time. Yeah, really interesting. Well, much more at albertarealtor.ca. Brad, appreciate making some time for us here this afternoon. Thanks for this. Thanks, Rob. All the best. Uh, okay. Brad Mitchell is CEO of the Alberta Real Estate Association. Uh, as mentioned, he got a piece in the Calgary Herald over the weekend, calgaryherald.com, on you know why Alberta seems to have an advantage in this area. So, yeah, there's, there's a lot of reasons for that, but that's you know maybe part of the story that, that's kind of overlooked. And so how do we make sure maybe, you know, that, that more Canadians are aware of that? Or do we want large influxes uh, of, of Canadians, you know, coming to Alberta? That's been the story in past years. Um, but, yeah, I mean, if, if, you know, you're looking for a, an affordable place to live, you know, Alberta's two biggest cities have a lot going for them. Uh, plus, where else are you going to watch NHL playoff hockey, right? 
Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.